Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Block. Derek, how you been, man? Great. I just had my birthday a few days ago. That was a lot of fun. I'm so glad to be back here in the Boston area after six weeks away doing this in person. It's going to be even better. Yes. Me and Derek are actually in the same room now, and it's very nice it to is be nice. back in the same room without the delay because that was annoying. Plus, I don't know, just being in the same room together is super helpful for just, you know, making this a cohesive show. So, right. Derek, really glad to have you back in the same room, man. Really yes. is. All right. So uh, why don't we go ahead and jump straight into it? A um, couple items for news here. Um, I want to talk about the update to the church handbook of instructions. Some of you guys may have seen this over the last week, but the church uh, firearms are now prohibited in meeting houses. Now, before we were allowed to have uh, concealed firearms in our meeting houses, like so long as you had a concealed permit uh, and as long as the public was notified. But now, the only exception to that rule is that, well, it's law enforcement officials. They're the only uh, exception to the rule. The new rule is that firearms are straight up prohibited, and only if you're a law enforcement official on the job can you actually have uh, a firearm on you. Now, considering what's happening in our country and that the church has had at least one shooting and an accidental discharge over the course of the last year, you might guess there have been mixed reactions from the members of the church. Many who agree with the language in the new handbook rules that says churches are dedicated for the worship of God and as havens from the cares and concerns of the world, with the exception of current law enforcement officers, the carrying of lethal weapons on church property, concealed or otherwise, is prohibited. So others feel like um, this, is an, this is an infringement on Second Amendment rights, even though churches and a lot of states can legally prohibit you from having guns in meeting houses, having guns in churches. Um, so, you know, I, I get that. But even still, I, I learned this week that a lot of synagogues seem to have armed guards outside of their doors. So while there's no firearms permitted inside the synagogues, there are some armed guards that are waiting outside the synagogues just so, like, people aren't sitting ducks or whatever. So, you know, you can feel whatever kind of way you feel about that but I'm kind of of the opinion that you know if no one can have a concealed weapon inside the church and there is a shooting or whatever I would at least like to make sure that the congregation is protected if this is a viable threat that we're dealing with the fact that churches can now just be shot up for any old reason synagogues can be shot up for any reason mosques can be shot up for any reason so I can understand wanting the actual house of worship to be void of weapons but at the same time you know the flock has to be protected and if somebody outside can have if there can be like security guards outside or something i'd personally be okay with that but i can understand if people wouldn't feel comfortable with that either i don't know what you feel what you think derek well i'm not an expert on politics but i'm thinking about how the gospel impacts this and if we look at jesus's life and his teachings and his even his death, we realize that death isn't the worst thing to be afraid of. Mm. And I think, yes, there is, we do have a, a legitimate need for safety and for protection, but I've read stories about people who love their guns and want to bring them to church complaining, and they're faithful members of the church, and they're like, why is this putting me in a bind now? The prophet did something I didn't like. <laughs> and 
and they're like, I need to protect my family and I'm not going, I can't feel safe at church unless I can bring my gun. I'm like, uh-huh. why are you prioritizing life more than, than the freedom of the gospel? Right? Because what they're saying is that preserving their life at all costs is the most important thing. And that's not what Jesus lived and died about. And we're, we're called to lose our life for the sake of the gospel. Okay. And just seeing people think that, that their right to kill other people, if need be, is more important than, than having a space without firearms, that just doesn't seem like it's a good living into the gospel. And some of these people quote texts in the Book of Mormon about people bearing arms in defense of their family. Yeah. But that's different. That's in the context of, for first of all, I'm a pacifist in the beginning, so I don't approve of military warfare. But that's in the uh-huh. context of you going somewhere and and having a, a military situation. This is taking a gun into a church, which is a very different thing. You're not in a state of war. You're in a state of, oh, if there's some random person that comes in. And that's, I think... It just their parallels don't seem to be convincing, and I don't think their excuses for for uh, for wanting guns more than uh, laying down their weapons actually makes sense in light of what I know of Christ. I see. So if I understand this correctly, it doesn't make as much sense to you for people to have a gun for protection inside of a meeting house as much as it does to. Sorry, I don't. I don't know that I understand totally what you're saying in terms of uh, the greater the greater good here. So, if Christ would not want me to protect myself in a church building in case some stuff should go down, then what exactly would Christ prefer in lieu of that? Well, what I'm responding to is people using the argument of armed um, armed uh, warfare in the Book of Mormon. Uh huh. And I'm saying that doesn't even count, although I because it's not an analog. It's not an appropriate analog. I'm also against and I think Jesus would be against armed warfare as well. Mm -hmm. So so that's kind of where I am. I'm not saying that I'm. Yeah, that's I don't know how if that makes sense. Okay, okay. I was a little lost in the beginning, but I think I smell what you're cooking now. So thanks for thanks for clarifying. I definitely agree that that uh, Book of Mormon analog isn't really appropriate. It's not an appropriate analog at all. Like, I would just rather people be honest about their desire to have their weapons on them at all times and just be okay with finding some kind of middle ground. Like, as long as the flock is protected and uh, the focus is on the Savior in the meeting houses rather than what if something goes down, then I think think we have won there. But, uh, yeah, I'm interested to see where the church, how the church is going to respond to the pushback to this because there has certainly been some. And I feel like all the solutions to this particular problem that would guarantee others safety would be kind of, you know, expensive to the church. Like, say the church does actually have or hire armed guards outside of every meeting house to make sure people are protected, kind of like they do at conference. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I don't know how much that runs the church, just a general conference, but that's kind of the direction I feel like people are trying to take this uh, moving forward. And I'm not saying I would have an issue with that. But it does seem a little excessive. Right. And from what I know, like having a quote, a good guy with a gun in the mix actually doesn't help you 
in the long run. At least not statistically speaking, it hasn't. Right. There's there's just it can complicate the whole issue. That's yeah. I think there's so many ways that that could go wrong. And if when the cops come and they see a whole bunch of people with guns, how do they know who's the good guy? It's just a a, a big mess that we don't. I don't think we want to even start down that road. I don't think so either. And that's probably been the biggest issue with, or the biggest complaint with uh, all these teachers. Like when, I mean, school shootings are still happening, but uh, after the whole Parkland thing happened, there was like the suggestion that every teacher get armed or whatever. And that can obviously be a huge problem once cops arrive on the scene for, for that very right, reason that you right. just highlighted. So definitely it's a step in the right direction. I feel um, but I think more steps definitely need to be taken in order for us to find a peaceable solution to what we do perceive to be a problem uh, with firearms in the church or the potential danger that would arise from having firearms in the church. So, yeah, that's the latest news with regard to uh, the church handbook of instructions. That's all I got for that. Uh, I just wanted to say there's there's this kind of... Um almost double standard that that people think that people on the progressive end of the church are the ones that are like less faithful and less following the prophet and less you know much more skeptical but it's it goes both ways there's a lot okay. of people who are highly conservative in the church that when the prophet comes out with something like this they'll say well the prophet makes mistakes <laughs> and they say all the stuff that the liberals get accused of saying mm-hmm. like well they're not perfect or well this we're going to go with the scriptures over the prophets, stuff like that. That's their attitude. Yeah. But they don't get accused of being like faithless the way mm-hmm. that the, the progressives do. But yeah. they do it all the time, I especially actually, around things, uh, immigration. Yep. Um, there are many things where, where the, the far right conservatives in the church look at the, our, uh, our general authorities and say, well, they, they make mistakes and, mm-hmm. They're not in agreement with the scriptures, and we just, we're not going to do that. Yeah. We're actually, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more once we get to the, once we get to the come follow me. Okay. But uh, for the time being, uh, yeah, I got nothing else for that particular story. Derek, I understand you have something, a little bit of news. Yeah. So in October, the United States Supreme Court is going to hear a case. It's actually three cases combined together. All of them have to do with employment discrimination for LGBT people. I think um, two uh, two of the cases, the employee was queer, and in, in third, the, the employee was trans, and they were all uh, fired. And they, uh, they brought suit. Um, and what's interesting about this is that our Civil Rights Act has protections for non-discrimination in terms of the sex. Uh-huh. And the equal employment... Um, so what we have is the EEOC making, uh, expanding that understanding of sex in, to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Okay. And that's how it was under o- Obama. But now we've got this case where people are, are, are making this claim that they've been discriminated against and that the law should be interpreted to protect them as a protected class. So that's where we are with this. And the the, um, the case will be heard in the Supreme Court in October. And so here's what happened. When, when things like this happen, you've got all sorts of people, all sorts of institutions and, and coalitions 
um, filing amicus briefs, staking out their side and what their interest is in it. And Brigham Young University joined a number of other Christian colleges to to submit an amicus brief. And and this is basically their argument, if I can understand it correctly. So there's, there's two options that they could have done. They could have argued for what I would call full discrimination, like anyone in the country has the right to discriminate against LGBT people based on, just on that basis. Or they could have argued for a limited exception to say, well, certain religious institutions can discriminate for certain reasons if it, on the balance it, it works for everybody. That is, we have some rights here, the other people have some rights here, and so to balance it, we're going to carve out some exceptions. And that actually makes sense when you think about it for certain cases. Like, obviously, religious institutions should be able to discriminate in hiring on the basis of religion, right? Like, if you want your priest to be Catholic, you should be able to say, only Catholics can be our priest, right? And same thing. Mm-hmm. You, That makes sense. And I think because we have the separation of church and state, there are some things where in order for religions to function, they need to hire their clergy to fit their requirements of their religion. And that may include things around race, gender, sex, all these things. And that's how it currently is. Hmm. Um, religious institutions do have the ability to, discri- to discriminate. That's a carved out exception. But what they were doing is they're not arguing for, oh, let's carve out an exception. They're like, we want full discrimination so that everyone, like Bubba and his bakery, can fire someone for being gay. Mm-hmm based on their religious beliefs, when religious beliefs have nothing to do with the actual uh, employment, right? Mm -hmm. Unlike if you're hiring a priest or a rabbi, that actually is part of the job description. Right. But they're saying, we can fire anyone. Now, I have a couple of problems with this. Well, obviously, many problems (laughs) with this. But one of them isn't, the biggest one is, I could almost respect like a balanced approach, right? Like let's keep certain exceptions in place. But to say that everyone everywhere has the right to discriminate against my people in terms of employment Mm -hmm. based purely on the excuse of their religious beliefs, I have a problem with that because when we look at the Civil Rights Act for things around sex and race, it's pretty clear that we don't think that people should be able to use their religious beliefs to to discriminate mm-hmm. on those on those things. That's just out of bounds for what a civilized society should be, where we can all come to the table, and um, and so that's kind of where where I am with that. I don't know what if, what your thoughts or reactions to this are, what you've heard of this news. I think Jesus would bake the cake, right? Like that's what this comes down to for me. Um, you know, what, whatever the legal implications of that are, I'm not entirely sure because I'm not a student of the law, nor am I a student of politics. But I think Jesus would bake the cake, and that is why I have a problem with the stance that BYU has in this amicus brief. Yeah, and I there's also another hypocrisy and double standard in why is it that Christian bakers who are anti-gay feel that baking a cake is participating in the marriage, but Christian gun dealers don't think that selling someone a gun is a participating in the murder mm. right i think that it, that that uh maybe we should hold uh 
gun people, gun dealers morally responsible for those to whom they sell guns that end up committing crimes with them. I don't know. I don't think that. If we are to believe that somehow baking a cake for a gay wedding is right. somehow being complicit in yeah, I don't that think union. it is. I and it's it's not. It is. Like, it isn't. It's just a way of, of, of trying to dehumanize someone. Like even still, like get that bag. You know what I'm saying? Just right. I. <laughs> if you, especially because what you're selling them is the cake. If you would sell the same exact cake to a straight couple unchanged and sit sell and and not sell the exact same cake to a gay couple that you would sell to a straight couple what you're doing isn't discriminating against the product it's not about artistic expression it's not about any of this other stuff it's about you don't like the identity of the person right right and i was thinking ooh maybe we could come up with this really interesting loophole that straight couples can go to the bakers and buy the cake and resell it to a gay couple and go, ha ha, <laughs> your cake just went to a lovely gay couple mm. and too bad for you. Because, yeah, there's there's always ways, of creative ways around that we can, we can uh, enact some resistance and some strong resistance and strong allyship there. Certainly, certainly. Anyway, so that's enough for this. Um, we can come back to it later with, with the prayer roll. Sounds good to me. Then let's go ahead and move on to uh, the Come Follow Me section of the show where we are going to be discussing this week 1 Corinthians 14 through 16. So uh, just uh, three chapters here, but there is, there's a lot to be gone over here. There's a, couple of, uh, there's a couple of big subjects here that are worth mentioning. I know you wanted to say a word about uh, what Paul has to say about women in the church, and uh, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Something I did want to bring up was uh was a verse that hit me a little I, I i've heard this scripture quoted before i wasn't entirely sure where it was from perhaps because it's in multiple places throughout the scriptures but it's in first corinthians chapter 14 and that scripture is uh 1433 this particular scripture reads god is not the author of confusion but peace now i've had a couple of thoughts about this particular statement this time around, just considering all that's going on within the world of religion and within the world of Mormonism. And in that context, this seems like a bit of a loaded statement to me, particularly to the casual observer of, you know, religion, of the Abrahamic religions, of Christianity, and we can take it all the way down to Mormonism even. Like what seems to celebrate all of us as Christians is a different understanding of what the Bible teaches and what Christ supposedly requires of us. Now, within Mormonism, there are several issues that we discuss and disagree on when it comes to what God wants or what he would want if he already if he hasn't already spelled it out explicitly. Now, that problem of, uh, you know, confusion in in Christ's church that is mitigated by Paul. Like we've talked about it many times on the show about how pretty much all of the letters are basically Paul correcting misunderstandings of doctrine, Paul correcting disputes in the church. So basically that issue of confusion is supposed to be mitigated by a some kind of living prophet of God. And that's what Paul's role is here. Paul is supposedly the one who is supposed to set these little misunderstandings and these disputes at rest. But that presents an interesting dilemma and begs an interesting question. What if we don't agree with the prophet? Like, what if there is a dispute with 
a policy doctrine or something like that? What if there's a disagreement with what the prophet has said or what the prophet has given us so far? And I couldn't answer that question immediately. I know how I've approached the situation, but I wanted to come up with a way to more directly address it, both with the words of the prophets and the words of the scriptures. So first I turned to the story of Jane Manning James. I've, uh, I've deferred to her many times to address a similar question to this, but uh, just by way of uh, reintroduction, Jane Manning James was a member of the church in the mid-1800s. She got baptized in uh, somewhere around 1842. She was also a, a black woman, and at that time, that meant she couldn't receive temple blessings required for salvation. Now, she petitioned for these temple blessings multiple times, but was ignored or refused every single time. Nevertheless, Jane never renounced her faith, and she never gave up hope that those blessings would be hers one day. She lived faithful uh, to the principles of the gospel as best she could, and did so for the rest of her life. Now, I'm of the opinion that Jane Manning James embodied another verse in these same chapters that Paul wrote, which says, keep in memory the principles of the truths that she has been taught. She held to simple truths that she did, and she didn't doubt whether or not she would be saved because she held to those simple truths. And I don't think any member of the church today who hears Jane's story in spite of her disagreeing with not being able to receive her blessings and never receiving them in this life, I don't think there's any member of the church who would say that Jane Manning James is not going to receive salvation. So what I, what I took from her story and what I took from Paul's words is that even if we do have those disagreements and even if those disagreements are with the prophet of the church himself, our obligation is to hold to the simple truths of the gospel as best we can. Now, interestingly enough, this part of Jane Manning James's story, I pulled from an M. Russell Ballard talk. And in that same talk, he exhorts the saints to simply do the best they can to live the principles of the gospel. And I didn't think that was a coincidence. I'll have to put the, I don't remember the name of the talk, but I'll put that in the notes. Um, but I did find it very interesting that as I was trying to find a solution to this problem, I found two answers in an M. Russell Ballard talk. And uh, they were illustrating two entirely different points, but I feel like that particular one can be extracted from both stories, both the story of Jane Manning James and both um, Elder Nelson's words in, uh, himself to do the best we can, and also Paul's words in these same scriptures that we are simply to keep in memory the principles of the gospel and then live the principles as best we can. I feel like that's the best solution for anybody who is having a disagreement, you know, within the church or at worst having a disagreement with the prophet. Yeah, I think I have a number of things to say about that. One is a lot of people, and I think this is cultural, not even in the scriptures or in the doctrine, is that they think that when that when someone then when when a general authority speaks that like somehow it's the final word that is that's all we yeah. know that we you know and that they're infallible in some practical way or even theoretical and that that's and they don't see they don't go beyond they don't see beyond that the prophet or apostles words in that case but my thoughts on this are is that if people and the members of the church cannot see beyond the words of the general authorities, 
They're like people who go to a restaurant and eat the menu rather than eating the food that the menu describes. Hmm. Because what the apostles and prophets are doing is pointing to Christ. Everything they do ultimately is pointing to Christ, and that's what we're feasting on. Mm-hmm. We're not feasting on their, on the words of the prophets. We're feasting on Christ. Um, and I think that's, that's really symbolized well in the sacrament as well. So, so a lot of people get caught focusing on the messenger. And so much of what Paul talks about is, you know what, don't focus on the messenger. Like in 1 Corinthians 4, I think it is, he talks about, look, we're just servants through whom you heard the message. You know, one of us planted, one of us watered, but it's God who actually did this yeah. all. Yeah, And um, that's how we should approach the prophets is what they're doing isn't doesn't have absolute authority. It has the authority of one who's along with us along the way, pointing a, us towards Christ, along uh, alongside us, not in front of us, not between us and Christ, but walking with us as one of us. Um, and I think that's something to keep in mind. Certainly, certainly. Another thing to keep in mind is there is an element of faith that's involved. In, in speaking up for your own dignity. I'm thinking of the faith of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15. And she even, she even had the boldness to tell Jesus what was going on. When Jesus said, nope, this, isn't, this blessing isn't for you and your daughter. I've only been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And, and she was a Gentile. And she mm. said, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Mm. And she said that in response to Jesus saying, well, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now Called she her a dog. Dang. Well, I mean, kind of harsh. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah. But that's, but the real glory is what she did, her faith. She didn't get discouraged even when Jesus said something. Right. She's willing to, to have faith in God's character and Jesus's promises. Mm-hmm. that, look, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me, which is what um, Jacob said to the angel wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And I think that's where we need to be, especially as marginalized members of the church, is saying, look, I have a deeper foundation in the character of God and in the meal that God has prepared for us than you even recognize. Mm-hmm. And you can't get in between that. Yep. No one can, because I think that's why I have seemed to float so well over all the, all of the challenges in the church is that I have dug deep into a foundation that no one can move. No one. Um, and that's that's where I get my my dignity, my faith and my ability to, to navigate the church and my ability to stand up for what's right, even when people who have various callings in the church think that that's not where we are yet. Mm. I actually have that phrase. You said that phrase, no man can get between me and my salvation or something along those lines. I actually have that phrase written down in my notes, uh, you know, with regard to Jane Manning James's story. She's another person that I think of who understood that profoundly. Like how else 
would you never renounce your faith? How else would you not lose hope in the promises of Christ while everybody else on earth, even the prophet, seems to be saying, you don't get this blessing now? Like, that is a right. pretty significant, that, that's a profound faith, and that's a pretty big deal. And if nothing else, illustrates to us the very principle that it all comes back to Christ. It's not about not even the prophet, like not even the prophet can like dictate the terms of our salvation. Right. He is simply there to point us in the direction. And then we got to figure out the rest for ourselves. Like I've always said, it operates like a three-legged stool. There's the prophet, there's the words of the scriptures, and then there's our personal revelation. And uh, ideally all three of those square up with each other. I mean, I know it's a three-legged stool. There can't be a square, but like, yeah, sorry, Jess, you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> um, but the fact is it is all meant to bring us back to Christ. And if something, if we are not afforded a blessing because the menu, as you eloquently put it at the beginning, doesn't have it on the menu, then we're kind of missing the point. You know what I'm saying? Just the whole point is to be pointed towards Christ. And as long as we are making that effort Mm -hmm. to follow Christ, then I honestly believe we're going to be okay. Yeah, and sometimes the the food is actually better than what's on the menu. Oh, absolutely. Like, you can go into a really great restaurant, and they put their effort into the food, and not in, because you know what I'm talking about, you see menus, that there's typos and mistakes, and the yep. price is wrong, and there's all sorts of, and they've got white out. That's, I think, where we are in the church. We have to look through the menu to see the glory of the feast that's behind it. Yeah. And so many people in the church are culturally just stop with that menu. Yeah. Like, oh, that's what I heard in conference, and then all their growth is done. Yeah. I want to talk just a little bit about the the statement God is a um God of order, right? Okay. We have to remember that Paul is always talking about a particular problem, a particular occasion in a particular context and everything he says is narrowly tailored to that thing. Mm-hmm. In many cases we can't take it out of context and make it an absolute statement that that's that applies to everybody. Yeah. And I think a case of this is if you look at Paul, at Jesus's uh, action in cleansing the temple from our from an outsider's perspective, that wasn't very orderly. It wasn't very respectful <laughs> of the temple. It wasn't, you know, it was it was a lot of commotion. It probably scared a lot of people. Um, it it didn't look very orderly, and so we have to take what Paul is saying and realize he's per- responding to a very particular spot. And if he were responding to something else, like in Galatia, it may have done something different. Yeah. Right. Because what he said in, in to the Galatians did did cause some confusion and, and some disruption. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of confusion and disruption, maybe we should go <laughs> on to the the thorny text that um, that I think we ought to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, let, let's make an effort and uh, do the best we can to you know, stay in our appropriate lane as best we can. Right. And I have to say, of course, that we're, we can't present a woman's perspective on this. We cannot um, speak for women on this, but what we can do is talk about our own male privilege and how this text has been used in support of that. We can talk about, um, uh, we can speak, we can't, can't really tell, women anything they don't already know but we can speak to other men and say look this is this is something that's going on and lifting up this issue and this text so i wanted to uh because this is such a difficult text 
there's a lot that I have to say about this. Um, the first one is the analogy. Have you ever heard of what's called a gravity hill or a magnetic hill? It's a feature on a landscape where the way the terrain is aligned, you can take something and it looks like it rolls uphill. You can just set it down and it rolls uphill. And what's happening is it's actually rolling downhill, but your view of the horizon or the surroundings is so offset that you can't really tell what's level and what's not. And so it's just an illusion that it's uphill when it's actually rolling downhill. And there are, there, there are people would think these are haunted. You can put your car in neutral there and you'll have ghosts pulling your car uphill. It's kind of weird. Hmm. Um, and so some of these are, are famous. I've never actually seen one in real life, but I've heard of them. And I think that's what's going on right here. If you look at the narrow scope, you see something really, really weird. But if you look out far enough where you can see the larger context, what else Paul is saying, it can make you have to see, to see it in, in, in that light. And I think when we look at this one text, it, it, it we see Paul saying that women should be silent in the churches. But when we look at what he says elsewhere, we see him um, uplifting the voices of women. Right. We see him. They're prophesying. Women are prophesying. Right. They're praying allows, in church. He, in First Corinthians 11, he, he presupposes that women will be praying and prophesying in church. Mm-hmm. I love, um, uh, the, of course, the, one of the foundational texts on this is Galatians 3.28, where, which says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither... Um, slave nor free, and also neither male nor female in Christ Jesus. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. So on some level, even Paul doesn't work out the details of the statement that he said mm. in every in every case. But looking at the whole, we um, um, we've got women leaders in Philippians four, Euodia and Syntyche. We've got many women leaders in Romans sixteen, Prisca, Maria, uh, Mary, Junia the Apostle. Trophina and Trophosa. We've also got Phoebe the deacon. Mm-hmm. And the way he calls them co-workers and has that sense of reciprocality and mutuality, it seems like, yes, they wouldn't be able to do their jobs with literally without speaking in churches. So we have to figure out what's going on with this text. Yes, what is being said here? What is the context? And Lest sh- we perceive some yeah. kind of contradiction to be happening with Paul's teachings. And I should say that um, in the church, we don't interpret this text um, fundamentalistically. We, uh, we have women who um, pray in general conference. We have women who are missionaries, who teach mm-hmm. the gospel um, to people of both genders. We have, peop- we have women speaking in general conference, teaching both genders. So we have never t- taken this in the way that some Christian groups have taken it to make an absolute prohibition on women teaching or speaking in church. Right. I should also say that one of the interesting things for for uh, Paul is is that um, he goes on to talk about the witnesses of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, but the first resurrection witnesses of the resurrection were women, right? And they have an yep. honored place. Um, they were commissioned. Mary Magdalene was commissioned by Jesus to go and tell the other apostles what was going on. So and they were also basically the only people at the cross besides John. Right, right, right. John's the exception. Mm-hmm. And um, so we have to think about this. And so that's kind of the context. Like one is zooming out to the context So because in the, in the local thing, you will have something really, really 
um, disturbing looking. It's kind yeah. of like this Gravity Hill situation. Okay. The second thing I want to talk about is one personal encounter I had with an evangelical, um, uh, an evangelical man about uh, several years ago. We were in a, in a group, and he, based on this text, basically said that women should not, should not be church leaders and women should, should he says, I, I have some <laughs> uncertainties about women okay. church leaders. How'd that go? Well, I was there, so you know that okay. there was drama, right? Yes, okay, yeah. You know, me, you know, was, give me the tea, man. I'm ready. Okay, so he was in a group of people. We were just actually standing around after church, and he off. So none of us had a Bible in our hand. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him, and I said, and there were there were women in this group talking too. And I looked at him, and I said, there are three groups of people in First Corinthians 14 that Paul tells to be silent. Do you know what the other two are? And he looked at me dumbfounded because he did not know what they were. Of course not. And um, and uh, and the other two groups that he talked about were that Paul talked about were um, if someone is speaking in a tongue and there's no one there to interpret, then they need to be silent. Or if uh, people are, uh, if someone else who's sitting receives a revelation all of a sudden and needs to prophesy, then the first person should be silent. Okay. And both of these are connected not with an absolute prohibition because there's nothing wrong with speaking in tongues. There's nothing wrong with with prophesying the revelation you've experienced here. But it has to do with the order in the church. If you do it in such a way that causes a disruption and disorder, then you should be silent. So all three, and also the King James Version distorts the this a little bit because Paul uses the same word for be silent, same verb in all three cases. But the King James uses the term hold hold his peace for one of them and then to be silent when it's the women. Mm. So people reading just in the English won't realize that Paul's using the same verb here. So this gets back to what what Paul says at the end of uh at the end of the chapter in 1 Corinthians 14, that um, that all things in the church should be done in harmony and good order. And that's actually the point. His point isn't to uphold a particular um, essentialist view of gender. His, po- his whole point here is order in the church. Now, I'm not excusing everything he said, right? I am not, I'm not saying that this applies or even that I would take Paul's advice that this actually makes things good order, orderly. Because he is prioritizing um, certain things over others, right? Uh, right? He's prioritizing order over women's access and uh, contributions. So I'm not saying that this fully gets Paul off the hook. What I'm saying is this pointed out this young man's hypocrisy. In he, uh, this is probably the only verse in First Corinthians 14 that he knew. <laughs> right? So it's not like he's faithful to the scriptures and he's read them all thoroughly and this blossoms out of his desire to be faithful to this verse because otherwise he would know these other verses in 1 Corinthians 14 if he's uh-huh. thoroughly studying. What, what happens is he probably just saw it quoted somewhere saying this is why we don't have women leaders and that's the end of his, his thought about this. So I'm just pointing that out. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of where I was going with that. Um, cool. Proof texting is I, bad. Another thing we have to look at is the historical context. Is uh, Jesus? So Paul in Paul's time, 
women and men typically worshipped separately. Okay. Um, kind of like we do in the temple. This is also found in many old Christian churches, um, Judaism and Islam as well. And what he what's happening is he says that w- if women want to learn something, that they should ask their husbands at home, which, which sounds bad, right? I don't want to paper over that. But part of what happens is you have to realize if the men were on one side and the women were over here calling over to their husbands, asking a question in the middle of the service, that's not something we would want in either for either gender to right. do. And, um, and because uh, women did not have the same access to education as men, they may have had more questions or may they, they may have uh, – there must be something on the ground that made whatever Paul was responding to disruptive in some way. And so that means the solution doesn't have to be what Paul said. It could be another way, like if we make sure that women have equal access and equal education and there's ways of of addressing things in a way that's orderly, that would also completely fulfill what Paul's trying to do here. We have to think about what his goal, and his goal, like he said, is order in the church from the last verse of 1 Corinthians 14. Right. So then there's a third thing to keep in mind, and it has to do with what we call textual criticism, and that is the art of... This is a page from the Greek New Testament, a modern uh, critical text where people have taken the different readings of different manuscripts. I'm like looking through this thing like, can I read this? I can't read any of it. <laughs> well, I just wanted to point some things out, though. All right, point some things out. You won't out. need to, to know Greek to, to, to understand. Perfect. So this is 1 Corinthians 14. We've got, um, we've got the verses 34 and 35, which I will, I will translate here because I haven't read them yet. Okay. Um, So verses 30 and 4 and 35. Let the women be silent in the churches, for it is not permitted to them to speak, but to be submissive. And this verb, uh, to be submissive, hupotasso, really means to fall in line under, right? To to be ordered up under something. Okay. Uh, Kind of like soldiers would be lined up under a general, something like that. All right. Um, it doesn't have to be a uh, uh, negative. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. Okay. Um, just as the law or the Torah says. Verse 35, if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. Ooh, I, I don't even want to translate this. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Um, now, now, here's what's going on. Um, we have this little bracketed, angled bracket at the beginning of verse 34 and at the end of verse 35. And then if you look down at the footnotes, this is the critical apparatus that tells the different readings of different manuscripts. So under, you see where it has the little dot for 32, for 34 and 35? Yeah. The next thing it says, here you have that angled bracket. That means everything between those two brackets, all of verses 34 and 35, Ponunt post, that's a Latin abbreviated there, which means are put after. 40 means verse 40. So basically what it's saying is these These verses are out of con. They're not in the proper place. Yes. So here's what's happening. Are we supposed to read just from 33 to what, 36? Just go from 33 to 36? Like, is that how it's supposed to be read? That's how these manuscripts read it. I see. Okay. So what's happening here is... um, now I need my 
Okay, let me... Sorry, keep talking. I'm just pulling up my English scriptures now. So here's what we're doing, is that most of our manuscripts and our oldest manuscripts read it the way that we have and read it in the order that it's in the King James Version. Yep. But some manuscripts take these verses, 34 and 35, and put them after verse 40 at the end of the chapter, and these are the... And then it lists which manuscripts do that. Um, Codex D, which is from the 6th century... We've got FG. We've got several um, Latin manuscripts, a manuscript of Vulgate, and then the Church Father Ambrosiaster. They all read this differently. So we have this later tradition um, that puts these verses in a different spot. I see. Now what some scholars have, have decided that that means is that these verses were never part of the original text, that they were someone had written them in the margin, and then later... They got put into the text in two different places. But they're in every manuscript. They are in every manuscript. That is true. So... But, so some people trying to explain how this got moved, like either a scribe moved them from one place to the other. Uh-huh. And then, or they never were part of the original manuscript and somehow it got inserted into two different places. Okay. And now I don't... Uh, Based on the balance of the evidence, I don't think that that's what happened. I'm thinking that based on the evidence I can see, these verses probably were original to Paul and probably in the place that we have them. Right. But but there are real scholars who have said Paul probably didn't write those, and um, and they don't fit with his theology. They don't fit with the way with he the way he treated women. And actually, if you take those verses out, the rest of the chapter actually flows a little yeah, better. Yeah, about to say, it makes sense now. Right. I, just, I just did that myself. I read it straight flows, from 33 to 36, yes. and I was like, oh, that actually makes some it sense. Actually, it, yeah, it, it does flow a little better. makes more sense, rather. So some scholars say that that's what happened, um, okay. which which could be a possibility, um, but but also on the on the balance of the evidence, to me it looks like like these verses, because the, the, the sources that we have that, that transpose these verses to somewhere else, those are fairly late uh, okay. and, not, and not as widespread. But gotcha. all of our earliest and best sources have the verses in the place that we see them now. All right. So that's, uh, so that's how you – I just wanted to show this so that people realize, oh, there's, that's how scholars do things, and that's the texts that, that we use, the mm. standard critical edition of the text. Mm. Jeez. That is – involved man it is involved (laughs) i mean hats off to you for for doing that but i'm just like i mean first of all that clarifies so much about what's happening here just in these Mm -hmm. verses particularly from 33 to 36 like that little nugget i I didn't even know that was a thing that you know happened in scripture that you could just go from 30 that you could just have some verses that are completely in the wrong place and yeah it does happen i mean um because yeah, part, of, part of what part of what can happen is uh, these were all hand copied up until the invention of the printing press, mm-hmm. and so sometimes people would write um, their own notes in the margin just like we do. Yeah. Right. But also sometimes the the first the the person when they're when they're copying if they made a mistake and accidentally left something out they would put it in the margin. Okay. So then later people might not know, oh, was that something that left out that's supposed to be in, in the text, or is it someone's marginal note? Um, and I think the the, famo- the most famous case of one of these marginal notes getting into the text is in um, first, uh, first John 5, 7. Mm-hmm. And this is the one that coordinates um, 
the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, saying all three are one. And that actually is an, uh, an interpolation that, that made its way into the text very late. Okay. But anyway, so let's get back to what's going on here. So that's, so that's the sort of the third thing to keep in mind is, is maybe we've got a textual problem here, and this isn't what Paul really wrote. Mm. And then the fourth thing is to remember that, that these, these scriptures, they have human fingerprints all over them. Okay. Paul doesn't have to be perfect. Right. He doesn't even have to understand all of the implications of his own gospel. Right. Right. This is something that burst into the world in a very dramatic fashion in Paul's own life. And he hasn't worked out all the details. He's actually working them out in as process we go. as we as we yeah. go. In real time. And he's he's trying to, to do something for a very specific church to solve a specific problem that's going on in Corinth that may not apply to other churches, that may not apply to our t- time. And he may have himself not been able, able to overcome his own biases and own preconceptions Certainly. when he wrote this. Certainly. And so that's, um, that's another thing to keep in mind, that we don't have to take Paul's statement here uncritically or woodenly. And in fact, we as Latter-day Saints, like I said, haven't taken them very literally mm-hmm. ourselves. I tried to see if this text has ever been quoted in general conference. And I found one. Mm-hmm. It was Brigham Young in a, um, in, a, in, a, in a conference talk called Education in 1852. He, quotes, he, he references this verse. But what's interesting is he doesn't even agree with them. He said, look at these old ancients who put this limitation on women. And I'm even more liberal than that. That's what <laughs> Brigham Young said. And Brigham also said, well, I'm not as liberal as some people think I should be. Mm-hmm. But he does say that he um, doesn't feel bound by that, and I don't think we should either. Big time. And this gets back into what we said earlier about seeing the words of prophets like a menu that's pointing us, giving us some anticipation and hunger for the meal. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't just eat that piece of paper and be satisfied when we could have the meal that it's pointing to. Right, right. And I think we can do the same thing with... Um, with Paul's words here. And obviously I wish we would we had a larger base of people that we could could invite um, women onto our onto our podcast. Um, I don't think we want to do that yet while we have a small audience, but once we have a large number we can definitely better amplify women's voices. I would love to bring on women and talk about women's issues and how women have struggled and wrestled with these texts. Certainly. Yeah. That, that is gonna be that is going to be for some of the topical content. Like for our for our additional bonus content, there's definitely going to be some interviews and there's going to be some topics we want to directly address. Uh, we'll still have these same episodes where we recap the week and talk about the Come Follow Me on a weekly basis. We're still going to do the whole weekly thing. But, uh, you know, these more specialized episodes where we tackle these issues more directly, uh, those are going to be in the bonus content that we that we create, and we'll keep you guys informed on how you can access that and when we actually start creating that content. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's going to be a fun time, and I'm greatly looking forward to that. One more thing I did want to uh, point out about uh, Paul, because you kind of brought this up with your fourth point mm-hmm. that Paul is figuring this out as he goes. Paul existed; he lived at a time where patriarchy and misogyny were the norm. You understand? Like that is. Right a very significant thing to point out when you consider some of these other scriptures that Paul has written that seemingly condemn 
uh, not just women, but other groups of people like LGBTQ folks is like the example I go to almost immediately. Like when you get to the root of Paul's issues with um, with a uh, with same-sex relationships, this had far more to do with his discomfort of a man being in a woman's position than actual problems with anatomical complementarity or anything right. else. Mm-hmm. Like, that really shapes how you read those particular texts. And it shapes how you read pretty much the rest of um, rest of the Bible, really, because that is the time that we're existing in. We are existing in a time where it was shameful or more shameful to be a woman or where it was simply not desirable to be a woman or to have women in certain spaces. So like, I, I really like to read the scriptures through that lens as well. Like anytime I see something negative about, uh, same sex relationships or anything negative about women, I got to remember I'm reading this in the Mm -hmm. context of a society that was misogynistic and patriarchal. Like, the ancient world, classical yeah. antiquity ran on those concepts, and that was the Norman Paul's time. I try not to hold that against him, against Paul, but uh, that definitely makes, like in that context, it definitely makes it easier for me to read words such as what we see in verses 34 through 35. Right, and another thing to point out is that Paul, even though I'm very uncomfortable with the text as it reads, there is mm-hmm. one one thing that's interesting about it in that he says, let women learn. Yeah. He does say, he doesn't prohibit women from learning, but he says, let them learn. Let them ask their own husbands at home. Uh, which should, in, the, in, in his time, there are a number of schools of thought that didn't allow women to learn. Mm-hmm. And we have to place that in this context, that I shouldn't say, well, at least he lets them learn, because that's, <laughs> ha- that's not what I should say as a man. Because he's letting them learn, quote unquote. Right? I shouldn't yeah. say that. But what, but I should point out that um, that women learning is something that is a value, mm-hmm. um, and and Paul wants women to learn. He wants them to pe- be curious and have questions and get their questions answered. He wants them to learn, and so did so did Jesus in Luke ten with Mary of Bethany, who sat at Jesus' feet and as a disciple, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's one thing that's really brilliant about the endowment is that. Um, the the rough sort of analog that would be in Freemasonry was for men only. Mm-hmm. And what Joseph did was take this learning and give it the same learning to both men and women, mm. endowing women with all the same um, knowledge and all the same powers and all the same things. And even in the temple, obviously, um, women participate and administer priesthood ordinances. And right now, women don't administer priesthood ordinances outside the temple. Uh huh. But that could change one day. That could. Right. That could. Happy day. Anything else on uh, Corinthians fourteen through sixteen, Derek? I want to talk a little bit about the resurrection in, uh, in First Corinthians fifteen. Okay. I don't have much to say. Because uh, I've already said, said a lot, but I just wanted to say that apparently some of the Corinthians, um. We're saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. Uh-huh. We see that in verse 14. That's and actually what they were saying, the whole God is not a God of confusion thing about. This was actually a result of a disputation about the resurrection of the dead that the Corinthians did not believe was happening, just to put that in context. Yeah. So we have um, Paul saying that, responding to, to them who were saying, 
there is no resurrection of the dead. And he, he gives out a, a, an interesting case. Okay. Um, he talks about the witnesses of the resurrection, including 500 uh, brothers and sisters, we should probably translate. The, the Greek word is adolfoi, which is masculine plural, but in Greek, a masculine plural um, is gender neutral mm-hmm. in context, right? Right. It, um, just like many other, or other languages, you just use one word for a mixed group. Right. And so we've got 500 uh, brothers and sisters and siblings, I should say, as well, to include the, those who are um, gender non-binary. But 500 of these uh, siblings saw, saw Jesus. And what's interesting is it's unlikely that Paul would lie and just make that up because of what he says. We have no other evidence anywhere in the New Testament of this sighting of, of the post-resurrection Jesus of 500. But it's unlikely that Paul would have made that up because he said some of them are still alive and you can go and ask them. Right? Mm-hmm. That's not the type of bluff that you're going to make. Right. Um, so Paul has this tradition of, of not just now, of course, he saw the resurrected Jesus himself, too. He knows with his own eyes. The 12 saw them, Peter and Cephas, uh, and also James and other, other apostles. Which is interesting because then that means people say, oh, it's so suspicious that Jesus only appeared to his followers. And that's actually not true. Jesus appeared to two people who didn't even believe in him. The first one was, was James, the brother of Jesus, mm-hmm. Paul points out. And the second is Paul himself, who was clearly not a believer in Jesus when he saw Jesus. Right. So we have two people who didn't even believe in him who saw Jesus. And I love and and where 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 Paul's going with this is real practical because he's he's thinking about here these Corinthians have had some of their people in their congregation die. And they want to know, are they gonna see them again? Are they what's gonna happen? He's saying the whole point of this is that we have another hope, that we have victory over death. And so even this is a practical concern for Paul in his ministering to this community. I love what St. John Chrysostom sta- says, says to this about the Corinthians who have fallen asleep. Paul, um, here's what Chrysostom says. Paul does not say that some have died, but they have fallen asleep, thereby, thereby confirming the truth of the resurrection. And this is in one of Chrysostom's homilies on the epistles of Paul to the Corinthians. And I think that's beautiful. He, he uses that euphemism, fall asleep, because that's actually what, what Christians are when we die, is we're not dead. We're just sleeping, and we're going to get up again. And that getting up again is something that we can be so confident in that it changes the way our, we live our lives ethically. In fact, almost every one of these controversies in 1 Corinthians has some degree of, of um, being energized by Paul's understanding of the resurrection. Like the divisions in the church can be healed by by this knowledge of the of the resurrection that we're all raised into one body that we're all um, one body in Christ that gives us a unity um, in terms of our sexual standards that the resurrection body knowing that this body that we're using for sex is now going to be raised again changes how we think about sex and same yeah. with food same thing with division in the church. Um, it helps us uh, with the speaking in tongues controversy, the food sacrifice to idols controversy. All these things help us uh, knowing that this life isn't the only one, that we're going to be together in a certain way. That we're, we that helps us make sacrifices in this life for the good of the community. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, 
giving us hope in the resurrection gives us hope um, that that our uh, that our bodies will not just decay, but they will come back to life again, and that we will have ultimate victory over death, and that changes everything for Paul. Hmm. Uh, I like what he says in verse nineteen: "For if in only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone." And his point there is that the call of Christ is not a call to comfort and complacency. We're not going to have an easy life. In fact, our life should be such that if there were no resurrection, it would be tragic, right? Right. We're not going to have peace and prosperity and joy and all this. We're going to have a lot of suffering. And so I like that that's how Paul has a message there for people who are persecuted or marginalized, that all of the wrongs can be overcome, that even if we're killed for our identity— that will be made right. And I think there's something about lifting up the undergo- the underdog in the name of God that Jesus that Paul is doing here using the resurrection of Jesus. And I think people who are marginalized can can really drill down into that foundation. Hmm. And of course one of Paul's arguments we should mention is in verse 25 about baptism for the dead. Some people uh, that the Corinthians knew about or maybe they did themselves, had a practice of baptism for the dead. And he's saying, his argument is like, why are they doing this if there's no no resurrection? So he's trying to pull out every possible uh, rationale to to give the the Corinthians reason to believe in the resurrection, of their own resurrection and the resurrection of Christ. Mm -hmm. And this leads to victory over death and hope for the oppressed. Great stuff, Derek. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. You have anything on First Corinthians 15 no. anymore? I actually thought about it because like, because the discussion on the resurrection is what led me to uh, God not being the author of confusion. I thought about talking a little bit about it, but then I just focused so much on the whole God being not the author of confusion bit that no. I was like, resurrection can wait. Plus, I'm sure Derek is going to have something to say about that. Like, I meant to ask about it, actually, just to see if there was something additional I could pull from those scriptures that we quote a lot in the church. But, uh, you know, you didn't disappoint. You know, no. you went right for it and you gave it practical application to those of us on the margins of society. And that is not something I would have pulled out. So thank you for sharing that. You've already shared. Right. Well, of course, Paul was on the margins of society. Well, yeah, right? he was. And, uh, and the Corinthians. Right. So, so we have to. Uh, they were a persecuted people, persecuted mm-hmm. for their Christian identity. Yes. Okay. So let's go to the prayer role. Yes. The prayer role. Um. Do you want to pick up where you left off with the amicus brief, or should I just go ahead? Sure, and I don't have much to say on that. Okay. Although, when I say that, that probably means I'm going to be talking for 10 minutes. I'll time you. <laughs> but what I really, what, what's really interesting is that these people are um, persecuting my people and think they're doing God a favor. Yeah. Which is a line that Jesus used. Right? Yes. And I'm um, actually going to talk about that too, but continue. I am, I'm, all, I'm here for it. And I think that's the real tragedy is not how I'm going to get hurt because I'll be fine. Even I've lost my job before due to uh-huh. my orientation twice. Oh, geez. I didn't Texas, know that. Where um, there is no anti-discrimination law. <laughs> um, and so I, I've been on that and I've survived. What What isn't going to survive is, is the decay to these people's souls mm-hmm. that they have to do mm-hmm. to deny. They have to deny their own humanity in order to deny mine. Oh, it's a whole bar. What's the timestamp? 
I'm going to remember that. Okay. <laughs> they have to deny their own humanity. They have to compromise who they are as a child of God, someone who's in communion with a fellow member of the same church in order to deny my right to exist in public mm-hmm. and have the same rights as of other people in public. That's going to hurt them more than it hurts me. I'm going to be fine. Yeah. Right? Even if they kill me. Well, God's going to raise my body again. So there. Right. Judgment no, will one, be on them. no one can get to my soul. They can get to my body, but they can't get to my soul. What's happening to their soul is worse than what's happening to my body. Mm. Because that, that, I, that's why we need to pray for them. Not so much for my benefit for theirs, because mm-hmm. they, they have a gangrene that is rotting their soul. Oof. Good disease. And falling apart. Um, I can't remember where it is in the new Testament, but gangrene is mentioned once. In uh, in that same metaphor, I think of oh. sin. Well, okay then. <laughs> so, so wow. Um, um, but yeah, I just want to pray for them because it, before it's too late, because they could, you know, they could go their entire life with that perspective. But hopefully, they'll realize before it's before the end of their life that wow, we really messed up. We. Uh, needlessly persecuted fellow children of God in the name of God, hurting them and God who weeps over this and uh, us for doing it. And um, it looks like the main lawyers behind this brief, even though it was a a coalition of different colleges and organizations, it looks like it was um, lawyers at Brigham Young University and Curtin McConkie who authored this brief. Mm -hmm. I'm like, hmm. Let's think about this. Let's think about back when we as Latter-day Saints had our civil rights violated, mm-hmm. driven out of town, killed, you know, um, all these other things. Uh, yeah. I mean, is there no sense of empathy? It seems as soon as we get a seat, as soon as anyone gets a seat at the table of privilege, all of a sudden they get amnesia. Right. That's That's why... Gay white men are now evil. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> because now gay white men are the straight people of gay people. Okay. I can see that. Right? And mm-hmm. so there are a lot of gay white men who are like, okay, I've got mine. We don't need to deal with lesbians or trans people or, mm-hmm. or, or bisexual people anymore. Like, we've got our rights and we're fine. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are fine depending on what state they're living in, they can have a legal marriage, they can have a job, they can have basically everything now. Yes. But that is not the case for trans people, Mm -hmm. especially in the climate that we are living in now. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to leave trans people behind. And I think that is an instinct that many, many, uh, many gay white men have. And and also our, our queer people of color are left behind too. Yeah. So that's all I have for the prayer roll. Sounds good. And I really appreciate how you said that, uh, you know, you're going to be fine. It's uh, these people who are discarding their humanity to attack yours. It's them we really need to pray for. There are a couple of analogs in the scriptures for that. And the one that I immediately think of, and, you know, I think missionaries are taught to use these scriptures as a way of explaining why bad things happen to good people. But um, I think it's important to note that one of those reasons that bad things happen to good people or that God quote unquote allows this to happen is so that his judgment can be brought down on people who would exercise their agency to 
infringe on the rights or infringe on the agency of others. And that's a, uh, that, that is something that needs to be named when we consider uh, agency, when we consider bad things happening to good people and the like. But I wanted to uh, use that same principle uh, and speak further to this whole point of people using the scriptures to deny the hu- deny marginalized people humanity and bringing up this woman from Marysville. Now, probably some of y'all have seen this circulating about s- social media, uh, made national headlines, but uh, this is what happened. Uh, during a community forum in Marysville, Michigan, a moderator asked a city council candidate named Gene Kramer if there was value in attracting a diverse population to their town. Now, what her response lack, lacked in intelligence, sensitivity, and self-awareness was inversely matched with a refreshingly high degree of candor. And I, and I just want to read her response real quick to that question. And uh, this is also the reason why I believe this is a national headline in the first place. But this, is, this was her response to that question. She said, my suggestion, recommendation, keep Marysville a white community as much as possible. And she said this without a single trace of self-awareness, a single trace of sensitivity. And just, it, that's what made it refreshing. She like didn't bat an eyelid and she just seemed very not self-aware, whatever the opposite of that is. Um, and she, then she continued to say, quote, white, seriously. In other words, no foreign born, no foreign people. And then things just got so much worse from there. Um, like I already said, there was no self-awareness in her comments as, as she spoke to multiple reporters about, uh, about her remarks to defend them, just about as unintelligibly, if not more so, as her original words, even citing the Bible to do so uh, in one particular interview that she gave to uh, ABC, because during this community forum, she also condemned interracial marriage. She went on to say, what did she do? She cited Adam and Eve, actually, and then she condemned public education and doubled down on her desires to uh, uh, keep, keep Marysville a white community. Marysville is a 95% white town, by the way. Now, now we've spoken on this show several times, and uh, you spoke about it just now, about how serious it is to invoke the name of God to condemn things that he doesn't actually condemn, especially in the context of using God's law to deny people God's blessings or God's love or the opportunity mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. love in some cases. Um, and, and, and it's on full display with Jean Kramer. She, now, now, she thinks interracial marriage is a sin because of Adam and Eve, which is very curious. First of all, have you seen Adam and Eve? Do you know what they look like? How, how would you know? Like, she speaks as if the very concept of race even existed at the time that Adam and Eve were on this earth. She speaks as if, as if God created that construct himself. You know what I'm saying? Just, I, I've said it on the show before, but like America is in part... It's equal parts white supremacy and equal parts pretense. Like this woman just made up a ton of nonsense about what the Bible says about race without any trace of self-awareness or sensitivity about their implications. And she insisted that she had no problem with black people. She said in one breath that intermarriage was condemned, that she wanted to keep Marysville white. And in the same breath said, I don't have a problem with black people. Like this is, 
I don't even know what you call that, but this is just such a classically racist happening that it it almost felt like I was watching something from the 1950s. In fact, I think the top comment on this particular video I'm making reference to was, oh, look, somebody took some footage from the 1950s and colored it. Like, that's great. And uh, this was 2019. This was just a few days ago that somebody said in the same breath that they don't have a problem with black people while at the same time saying they wanted to keep their community white and that God condemns uh, interracial marriage. Now, this is where, this is what really gets me. Um... I know she isn't the only person who thinks like this or acts like this in Marysville. I I don't know how you make it to 67 years old. That's how old Gene Kramer is. I don't know how you make it to 67 years old in 2019 and no one tells you that the way you think is problematic unless you've spent your entire life in that town or no one is, or you've never echoed those thoughts to anybody, but she seemed very comfortable sharing those thoughts with the press and very comfortable sharing those thoughts in a very public community forum. Like how do you, even in 45's America, I I don't know how you audibly say that, say any of these things and then use the Bible as your reference. Like, I, I don't know how that happens. Right. And there's a, there's a, there's a big asymmetry there because she, out of her privilege, can just say what she wanted. Mm-hmm. Whereas other people who've had that text used against them mm-hmm. have to know it so much better than she ever can even start knowing Absolutely. It, right? Big time. Because she has this platform we can, where she can say with whatever she wants, without any training, without any evidence, without any backing. She can just, that's, that's white privilege, right? Yeah. She can say it. That is white privilege. And then other people... Uh, who've had the text used against them don't have the same privilege. They have to deal with the text. They have to know it better than the people who would use it against them in order to survive. Absolutely. Which brings me, and this white privilege piece brings me back to this thing I'm a little mad about. She ended up withdrawing from the race, even though technically her name is still on the ballot. Now, I'm mad that she withdrew from the race because I'm not going to see how this plays out. The fact that she became a qualified candidate for the Marysville City Council tells me that people know who this woman is. Somebody's got to know her views and that she got enough support from people to become a qualified candidate in this race. So now that she's withdrawn from the race, I'm not going to see I'm not going to see the extent to which people in Marysville agree with her. I'm not going to see this picture of America that I've long suspected. But, you know, don't necessarily I mean. Yeah, there's proof. There's plenty of evidence that America is a racist place. But this particular story being so public, I was really hoping that we could get a microscopic view of America by seeing how this election played out, seeing how an election would play out where somebody utters such reprehensible things. I wanted to see how much support she got. I really wanted to see how much support she got. Well, look at how many people voted for Trump and all the things he said. All the things he said, like, yeah, don't get me wrong. Just that stands as evidence in and of itself. But even but, you know, even 45, I have like, even though he does say a lot of hourly reprehensible things, there's something special about Gene Kramer. And I can't quite articulate it, but there is just such this folksy. Everybody thinks the way I do nonchalance about what she said that just made me feel oh. like, oh, my gosh, either she's mentally ill or she's been validated her entire life through either never 
uh, echoing these thoughts mm-hmm. or simply everybody around her thinking the same way she does. Like, I don't know if you've seen the video. You know, I'll send it to you afterward. But Yeah, although we do have to be careful how we characterize people with mental illness. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. Uh, Got to be careful with that. Racism is... Uh, gosh, I've heard Jane Elliott say it before, but I'm very careful about it. I don't know how you would get to this point. But it is it's a break with reality. We can definitely say it that. It is a break with reality. It's almost a... It's not a schizophrenia. Like, I don't want to say that, but it is a definite break from reality. But this is all to say that there is a picture of America I'm not going to get to see now Mm -hmm. as a result Mm -hmm. of her pulling out of this race. But her name is still on the ballot, like I said. So, well, do you think Trump, I think Trump, unlike Mary, knows that what he says is socially inappropriate and that's why he says it because he knows that he'll fire up people. Knowing that it's the wrong thing to say, right? That is part of it, and I feel like I feel like he does that a lot for that purpose. I feel like he's calculated in what he says because he knows it'll get a reaction, and he knows it'll get a positive reaction or any kind of reaction because any publicity is good publicity. But I feel like Gene thinks everything she says. I feel like Gene is like an alien from another planet. And everything she says is just totally acceptable where she comes from. I don't get that sense from Trump. You know what I'm saying? I don't get the sense. I feel like he knows where he is and he's conscious of the environment around him and he's reactive to that environment. I don't feel like Gene Kramer is that. I feel like she genuinely feels like the things she says and feels are totally correct regardless of what anybody else says simply because that's the way her life is and that's the way it's always been. That's what I mean when I say there's something different about her that I wanted to see and I wanted to explore with this city council race. I would have to watch her debate and watch her defend her reprehensible views in a public forum and obviously see that election, but that's not going to happen anymore. So I'm like, I'm missing another opportunity for a case study in seeing how Americans result, uh, uh, respond to a certain brand of racism. Gene Kramer, definitely racism, but it's a different brand of racism. And uh, yeah, it's very different from 45's racism, but it's still racism and all of it needs to be combated very similarly. I just wanted to see how people would respond to her brand of racism. Yeah. Anyway, this is all to say, pray for the town of Marysville. Uh, pray for Gene Kramer. I- I'm, I'm very anxious to see you know where this where this election goes, you know, prayers for her and prayers for her posterity. <laughs> yeah. So I guess now it's time for the creating Christ-like change. Yeah, it would be. So here's, here's what I have for this week. Yes. Yeah, so what you got this week, Derek? It has to do with the power of building relationships, building relationships in the ward, in your community, in your family, how to create change locally through relationships because relationships are some of the most powerful things that you can leverage and draw upon when you're trying to change a space locally. And I have four quick tips on how to do this. The first one, and I should say these aren't like universal things. They'll always work. or They're just tools. They're options that if you know about them, they may apply and they may be the right thing to do and they may not. Okay. So, Tip number one is listening. And as difficult as it is to listen to people when they're wrong, it actually builds trust because it makes you look like you are open-minded and that you're 
you're um, willing to 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 be to take in other points of view and that you're willing to at least listen to them and then that models for them to be able to listen to you okay so it's kind of an investment so if you if you listen to someone even if what they're saying is really wrong and really problematic <laughs> um actually listening to them to understand and being curious about their position gets them to open up and um and then trust you and then they'll respect you better because now you look like you're someone who's the type of person that actually takes things into account which is what you want them to, to think and uh, now listening might not always be the right idea uh-huh <laughs> so you see it in my face like i'm i'm struggling a little bit with this Derek. and this isn't to say that you know, I see, I, I don't see truth in there because I've heard this principle before, Derek. It, and, I've, and it depends. It really depends on the person. If it's the type of person who's in that movable space, who is like like the avocado being squeezed, you have to figure out when, in the, when is the right time to eat the avocado. Mm -hmm. If they're in that place, then obviously this is one way of building trust and, and starting starting that conversation obviously i'm not saying you have to listen to people who are being abusive or harassive or harassing or or causing all sorts of problems but um but it does it does also lessen their defensiveness which is this is one of the big, biggest ironies is we have to redirect people without causing them to put up the defenses that prevent them from hearing the thing that they need to hear <laughs> very tricky and I think listening to them helps lower some of their defenses mm -hmm. because now they feel heard. They feel like, like you're, it, it, it actually works in certain, in certain cases. Right. right. The ripe avocados. Yes. So, and, st okay, step. So point number two is to think about people and community, individuals and communities being comfortable on a scale of one to 10, where, where one is their most comfortable, their most in their groove where everything is working the way they think it should and 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 10 is where the mo where they're most uncomfortable and if you come into a space you have to just to strategically decide where you're going to uh how disruptive you're going to be because if you don't if you're if you keep them at a level one or a two they don't change because there's no stimulus to change there's no impulse to like oh i've got to 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 accommodate this and uh, and assess how it fits into my worldview and there's no um thing that they have to absorb mm -hmm. no change okay but if you put them at a 10 they become so disturbed and so uncomfortable that they completely shut down and then no change happens what you want to do is keep a group or an individual at a at a sweet spot of like a four or five or six where there's just enough of a discomfort to have to wrestle r with it but not enough discomfort with it that they have to completely shut down. Okay. And I've made this mistake before, whereas I come in at a 10 and I'm full woke and like people are there and they're like, and it, it does not work. Okay. Now there's, there's places where that might work, I guess. But, uh, but this is just one tool is that in general, you want to keep people just a little bit, um, a little bit, a little bit farther along than they are, but still within their reach so that they can get to there and you, you bring them along um, that way. Mm. That is one tool that I've found that helps helps work. A third tool for building relationships has to do with contributing in your local area. Like if you 
um, and this does put a burden on us, right? It shouldn't be our burden, but this is something that helps build trust and helps build respect is to, to do your to do your ministering, to, to help people with the moves, to, to show up to, to clean the chapel, to do all the stuff that we're asked to do um, so that people depend on you and realize, oh, I can count on brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so because they're, they show up to stuff. And then when it comes time to, uh, to, to draw upon that social capital that you've built up, people trust you. They realize, oh, you're a team player. You're part of this church. You're actually um, indispensable in a way that we need you. They're, they're much less likely to try to get rid of you or to try to, uh, to deny you full participation. And then the fourth has to do with relationships in terms of your comments. I don't, and the analogy is almost towards a romantic relationship. If in a romantic relationship someone says negative stuff about you all the time, even if it's true, if most of their stuff they're telling you is complaining, even if it's true, it doesn't feel really good and that relationship is probably not going to last. But I think there's a, um, uh, but also you don't want to do the other end of only saying positive things and never actually giving, giving any constructive criticism. So, that, so here there's also kind of a sweet spot effect, and I think it's probably a four-to-one ratio, that four-fifths of what you should say, like in a class or in, a, in a, some other comment, should be uplifting, positive, and helping people in their faith journey, helping people um, help building their faith in the gospel and helping them thrive in the church. And then one-fifth of your comments should be um, critical and actually giving them a challenge. So you want basically four out of the five comments to be, I think that's about the right ratio to me because you're still what, what you do is you build up trust because then people look to you as, oh, Derek's the guy that's here that's actually helping build our faith, that, that's helping us stay in the church, that really wants us to thrive here, that is, a, that is a team player. And then they're able to listen to me that one-fifth of the time, whereas e where if I just say the negative stuff all the time, that's, that's going to be a problem hmm. because people are going to not have that, that trust built up. And they'll, they'll be more able to listen to the thing that I say that's challenging if I've helped them in their marriage, in their faith life, in their study of the scriptures um, in the past. So what do you think about, you probably have some disagreements with these, but that's fine if you want to share them. I think that's, that's valid for people to know. Here, here, here's the thing. Um, I, I consider myself a pretty rational person when it comes to yeah. public discourse. And I don't see any problem with meeting people where they are as a means of currying favor with them so that you can get them further. Do I always believe that is the right thing to do? That is, that is the question I'm more often than not going to ask myself because oftentimes in dialogues that I care the most about, I'm not trying to meet people where they are if where they are dehumanizes me or if where they are demands that I lower myself to like, I don't know. Like, I don't want to entertain people who already don't view me as 100% human Right, and I that's get that. difficult for me. Like, right. when when it comes to conversations on racism, if somebody already disagrees with my humanity, nine times out of ten, I'm probably not going to try to talk to that person, at least not for the purpose 
of getting them to see things my way. Because if they already think they're better than me, they don't necessarily have a reason to listen to me. I don't feel like you're talking about those people in particular. No, I think if there's people who, um, yeah, if the if there's people who are harmful to the to the community, then they need to be isolated through whatever um, way we can to to stop them from hurting others. That's different. I'm about to say, like, I'm talking about the people of goodwill who, who who are trying to do the right thing if they only knew what it was. Who are willing to 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 talk about it? Um, who are in some type of movable middle? I and I guess I don't need a lot of those people, Derek. That's that's my issue. Like I feel like there's a lot of well-intentioned people who still have very problematic views, and I feel like Jean Kramer is kind of like one of them. I think she means well, but just is so far off the beaten path that I can't talk to her. You know what I'm saying? Like there are people who are simply well-meaning, but they are just so ignorant that you can't really talk to them. So like I have that issue as well. Um, I I suppose I just don't meet a lot of people who are both well-intentioned and willing to hear me out to the degree where they actually value my humanity without necessarily, um, gosh, I don't know, man. I just don't well, meet people well, like let's, that. Let's let's put it this way: If I would have gone into my ward, yeah, you know, when I first showed up and I said, "Up, oh, you're all homophobes. You're all backwards. You're not going to get this. It's going to be so hard for you. Let me learn you how this is supposed to go." And I'm not even going to listen to you because I know I'm right on all, on all of these things, which of course I am. Yeah. But <laughs> if, if that's my attitude to them, like I've done that in other places, uh-huh. um, in other churches. And it, it didn't actually work. And mm-hmm. um, but doing this, it ac- I think it it really helped move my ward along. Um, in a in a particular way that actually worked. Like people have given me uh, callings with great respect and great yeah. responsibility and great yeah. influence in the in the um, in the church. You took the Serena Williams approach. That's what you did. Yeah. Okay, I just want to point out this approach is basically being so competent, being so good that people can't deny your talent. They can't deny your value. Same with Jackie Robinson. Same with Jackie Robinson. Like people may not necessarily look at him all the way as a human, but you know, you see him on the field, you can't deny that. Serena Williams, though the sport has tried to shut her out many times despite her being at the top of her game, they couldn't say no to her because she was just that good. I feel like, Derek, you're in essence doing that in your ward. You're one of the most learned people in scriptures, one of the kindest, most compassionate people I know. People can't deny you, Derek. Like, even... I feel like even if you did come in with that attitude, even if you didn't necessarily voice everything you said, I feel like I wouldn't be able to deny you a seat at the table simply because just by observing you, I know you've earned that place. I know yeah. you've earned that seat. And uh, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of work that I can get behind. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of work I try to do. You know, I magnify my callings. I go to church. I make sure I know my scriptures. I make sure I do my come follow me, you know, partially, very partially out of a part of me that still believes in respectability politics, a part of me that just wants to make sure I don't give these white folks any reason to say, oh, he doesn't belong here or he's less than us. But also because I know that in my performance, and I use that word very loosely, and I don't think I'm necessarily using that appropriately here. 
but I know that in my discipleship, so long as I exemplify good discipleship, no one's going to try to deny me a seat at the table, whether or not they agree with me. And I've seen this with people who I know disagree with me at church. Like they may not agree with how I feel about certain social issues, but they're going to see me working my temple shift every second and fifth Saturday. They are going to see me 10 minutes early for church every Sunday. They are going to hear me participating in Sunday school in meaningful ways. And what are they going to say to me? What are they going to do? They're still going to assume or they still going to suppose that I don't belong there. They can't do that because the Lord has clearly, because the church has already determined that I belong here. You know, um, the doctrine already has supposed that I belong here. And, I've carved out my own place. Like you, you, you can't say I don't belong here if I am doing everything I can in a way that shows that I do belong here. I'm trying to be like Serena Williams. Like yeah. I'm letting my discipleship speak for itself. And in so doing, I feel like that gives me license to be like, y'all folks got to repent. Like all y'all are homophobic. All y'all are racist. Please do better. I feel like that is the reason. Uh-huh. I feel like that rapport that I've built with my ward is the reason I was able to give that talk that I gave back in February. Right. And that's that's actually part of consistent with, with, with what I said about. Yes, it is. Yeah. About, yes, it is. You know, four fifths. And I just kind of made up that ratio. <laughs> but, I, um, but I hear what you're trying to say. Like it makes total sense. Yeah. I mean, because even. Yeah. I think about when I'm on the wrong end of these things. Like if someone comes up to me and say, Derek, what you did was sexist or what you did was racist or something like that. It's, it's, uh, I've overcome this by now, but at, at first there's, there's a satanic impulse in me that wants to be just defensive and say, <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the, the natural man inside of us that right, wants right, to, right, right. to be defensive. And mm-hmm. I think I, I, I hope I've gotten mostly over that to the, where I don't even care what it, does to my feelings or reputation because the important thing is what is the the person um with the relevant experience how what's their experience like and how how am i impacting that and how can i do the right thing that's kind of the primary thing now right right and i think modeling modeling that because modeling that is a is a good way of of helping others do it as well Mm mm-hmm and I've, I've, I've found these, these strategies to, to be really effective, to really work, um, especially with, with, with local leaders, because local leaders can either make your life really, really difficult or they can really, really help you. And building trust with your local leaders is, uh, is um, indispensable for, for, for thriving in the church, I think. Big time. And you have witnesses, Derek, like you got witnesses in the scriptures. You have witness in uh, what's that Dale Carnegie book that every every salesperson reads. Oh, how to make friends and influence that's the people. one. That's the one. That's the one. Um, I did read that book, but um, I remember he talks about this very principle. He echoes very much of what you said. And we see this working in the scriptures with uh, Ammon and the people of King Lamoni. Let's mm-hmm. let's not forget how the Lamanites felt about the Nephites. And as soon as Ammon got in there and started serving everybody and listening to the folks, you know, he earned yeah. trust and eventually ended up converting thousands. You know, that's not the yeah. point of the story. Right. But obviously we see that trust was built there because Ammon was willing to do the work of valuing people, of listening to them and of serving them. I feel like there's a lot to be said there. And I feel like that's a further witness to letting your discipleship do the talking so that people can be in a position to listen to you when you have something 
to share or when you need to call in somebody. Right. And it's like um, Jesus said in Matthew 7, by their fruits, you shall know them. And yep. I'm one of the fruits. You are one. Of- <laughs> 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 I walked right into that. <laughs> Dang, Derek. <laughs> one of the fruits. Yes. You yes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was terrible. That was terrible. Okay. Um, any other points you nope, have for that's all I had. All right, sweet. Well, that's a good, that's a great place to end Derek for this week's episode of beyond the block. Thank you all for joining us. Be on the lookout for more media from us on social media, more updates, more notifications. Uh, we're in the work. Well, if that happens, we'll let you guys know about it next week, yeah, but there's some you. potential positive, very positive happenings going on with beyond the block behind the scenes. Uh, as that happens, as that unfolds rather, we will let you guys know. But uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for following us. Thanks for your input and for your uh, feedback. We really do appreciate it and uh, look forward to making this a f- much more enjoyable experience for all of you guys. So thank you so much for listening. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs>